So I'm going to start this episode with some startling statistics. Gun violence is the second leading killer of children and teenagers in America. Here's another one. The Department of Justice recently stated that each and every year in the United States, there are 10,300 hate crimes that are perpetrated with a firearm. That's 28 per day. So what can we possibly do to end this? Today, we're going to hear from two leaders at organizations that are making real progress by changing the narrative. This is Inspired Investing, where we inform and educate organizations and individuals who strive to invest purposefully and with and for a mission. I'm Claire Gola, head of Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, and today you're going to hear from panelists at an event we recently hosted in Chicago. This was actually the third of a series of annual events that we began in 2017 in response to the rise of gun violence in the city. The first event highlighted four organizations working in very different ways to stem the tide of violence in Chicago neighborhoods. Then in 2018, we featured collaborative efforts between funders and nonprofit organizations to begin to create change. And then just a few weeks ago, we hosted the third gathering, this time focusing on changing the narrative to positivity and hope. Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, and Marlon Chamberlain from Ready Chicago, a program of Heartland Alliance aimed at connecting the highest-risk people to critical social supports, joined moderator Dan Protest from Chicago's PBS network, WTTW. Dan is also, by the way, producer of a documentary titled Firsthand Gun Violence, being aired this season on WTTW. So we're going to start with a big question here. Why do people commit acts of violence or hate crimes? Some social workers believe it's because hurt people hurt. Dan and Jonathan discuss. People who perpetrate acts of violence are often um, themselves coming from a place of pain. When it comes to people who perpetrate hate crimes, do you find that to be the case, that they're often coming from a damaged place? When it comes to hate, uh, I don't think, I think it is certainly true that to some degree, hurt people hate. But the problem is much bigger than that. I mean, I think we're living in a moment today where there is, despite the booming equities market, right? The S&P finished the top yesterday. People live with tremendous anxiety. There's tremendous anxiety and uncertainty out there. So it comes in different forms, there are different drivers for it. I think on the one hand, you have a kind of economic anxiety that exists where people are looking at, particularly in the heartland, you know, automation, Amazon, AI, and they're wondering where their jobs are going. And they wonder what job will be there for them down the road. Secondly, I think you have kind of uh, financial anxiety. You have student debt surpassing a trillion dollars. You have credit card debt moving back up. You have worry about the deficit, which you know this administration didn't seem to pay attention to, but is really quite a problem. And then I think you have broader forms of anxiety. You have climate change anxiety. Look, uh, I've spent most of my adult life in California, and I have friends right now who've evacuated their homes, both in Southern California and in Northern California, because of the fires. And in Northern California, the, the electrical utility has turned off the power because the physical infrastructure, the grid is failing. I mean, it's really quite crazy. And so is there then a tendency <clears throat> to blame one of So this is what happens. So in anxiety. an environment, when you don't have any reasonable, reasonable solutions, people start being prone to look for scapegoats. 
People start to lean on stereotypes. People start to look for the kinds of things that obviously aren't answers, but suddenly fill a need. And we see this happening, and we see it happening um, in lots of different ways, but these issues of hate now, and we can talk about the data if you're interested, are more pronounced today than they've been in recent memory. When I say recent memory, I mean you have to go back decades, decades and decades, decades and decades to find a moment like this. How does the notion of hatred develop in the first place? Why might someone determine that they hate someone they've never even met? Marlon helps us understand. I think a lot of it is, is inherited. Um, and, and I think of an example of when, when I was growing up in Chicago, I remember catching the bus home from school and a bunch of, of young men approached me and asked me, where did I live? And when I gave them the address to where I lived at, they automatically associated me with the gang, even though I was I had no affiliation with this gang. And so I think a lot of it just depends on 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 where you live. But then I also think about just some of the historical, like just systematic things that have happened. And when I think about redline and, and just all of the things, when you think about housing, some people just based on where they live inherit certain things. And so it's like I grow up and I'm hearing from like my peers in my neighborhood that this, these individuals shot this person. And so now I'm mad. And so, and then it just escalates and it continues until um, some sort of solution is put in place to stop yeah. it. And I think that's what Ready Chicago has been able to do is that our program, we, and we're in five different communities throughout Chicago, we're able to bring these young men together and give them an opportunity to see that I'm just like you. And that a lot of our, the root cause of a lot of our problems isn't each other, it's the lack of resources because we're really fighting, or they're really fighting for ownership of something. Mm -hmm. And they're also fighting for resources and they believe that this block belongs to them. And, and, and I like to talk about and infuse because I've been a part of like the legislative process. Like I like to ask questions like, do you know who your alderman is? Mm -hmm. So when I hear folks say like, I own this block, it's like, no, you don't. But these are the things that, because we don't know, like these are the things that we buy into and we've, we fall in, 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 in uh, really the narrative that's been created. A lot of people live up to it based on what other people have done. So how do you stop the cycle and change the narrative? Jonathan discusses the notion of proximity. Well, there's no doubt that, and there's been data that demonstrates the studies that show that being proximate to other people who are different than you it helps to erode uh, preconceived notions and understanding each other is critical to kind of fighting hate. Is we do advocacy, we try to change laws in the courts or in Congress to protect marginalized communities, Jews or others, immigrants, Muslims, African-American, Latinx people, LGBTQ. Secondly, we work with law enforcement. We track hate crimes and we train them on how to deal with hate. And we train them not just on how to deal with hate, but because of our civil rights work, we're now doing work here in Chicago to train them on issues of implicit bias. We train more law enforcement on extremism and hate than any other group in the United States. But thirdly, and most importantly, we do education. Because long ago we realized if you want to fight hate, you can't lobby your way out of it, so you can't arrest your way. You have to change hearts and minds. Today, today ADL reaches 1.5 million school children around the country with anti-hate content in schools. And that is all about bridging issues of difference, helping kids to understand 
and to, to realize that difference, the things that make us different, if you will, actually pale in comparison to that which makes us similar. So all of our exercises, some are peer-to-peer, some are extracurricular. It's about helping kids understand that bias is learned and how they can overcome it. I want every K through 12 student, every K through 12 student in America to get anti-bias education. We give them all driver's ed. We give them all sex ed. We should give them all bias ed. So they learn at a minimum, at a minimum, how to treat others with dignity and respect. And if we can do that, I think we'll make real progress into making America the inclusive place that I think you know, our forefathers imagined it to be. It's believed that roughly half of the conflicts resulting in gun violence in Chicago start online. How do they start online and spill over into the streets, and how can we stop it? Marlon explains. A lot of times, what a, a beef that's happening on Facebook, like, I can also see, like, if you're at the grocery store and you're on Facebook, and it could be a time when you're just with your family and you're just posting that on Facebook, that also alerts people that are in like the opposition uh, clique or gang that you're at the grocery store. And a lot of times they can come up to the grocery store and just sit out and camp out and wait for you to come out. And then they'll shoot you or try to fight you. And so a lot of it is, is these individuals are in close proximity of each other. And then they're, they're having like these, this tension on Facebook and then it spills over when, when they see each other. With Ready Chicago, they, the outreach teams actually use Facebook as a tool and they've, they're trained to identify like certain keywords that they look for and then they would reach out to those individuals to try to mediate something before it actually spills over in the streets. But they also use Facebook as a, as a way to identify participants that they're looking for. And so a lot of times, what a better, the best way to mediate a situation is to go out and offer somebody a job and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm from Ready Chicago, I have an opportunity for you. Um, and then that's a way to build that relationship to begin to, to have a conversation around, like, like as far as like how you operate on, on social media, like we just begin to talk to them about just like, like ways to change behavior, which ultimately would, would keep them away from violence. Rather than a firm line, it's more like a slippery slope in terms of negative hurtful speech turning into something more. How can we as a society distinguish between what's just talk and what might turn violent? So I'm not a lawyer, let alone a First, Amend- a First Amendment lawyer. And so, but if you talk to a First Amendment lawyer, they will tell you there's a difference between hateful speech and harmful speech. This goes back to Louis Brandeis. You can say mean things about Jewish people or black people. You can. It crosses a line when you, when you plan to cause someone imminent harm. It crosses, it crosses a line when you say, I'm going to come and kill you and your family. But let me put it to you like this. If you go upstairs, you were here in the Standard Club, right? If I go stand in the dining room upstairs and I yell, I want to hurt all the Jews and, all, and I, Jews will not replace us and blah, blah, blah. What do you think the management of the Standard Club will do? This is a, not a trick question. <laughs> Kick you out. They'll throw you out. Or if you stand downstairs at the Starbucks and you yell, black people go back to Africa or some horrible offensive thing, what do you think the the shift supervisor at Starbucks will do? She will 
Kick you out. Kick you out. So I would suggest to you that Facebook and Twitter, they're not the public square. What they are are businesses. And if someone is spewing hate and venom toward Jews or black people or anyone else, Twitter and Facebook should throw you out. This isn't a question of free speech. This is a question of moral leadership. And the idea that they can't do it is wrong. The idea that it's too technically hard is incorrect, and I'll tell you how I know that. And in fact, here's a homework assignment. Go to YouTube this afternoon. By the way, YouTube reports every minute of every day, users are uploading 400 hours of content. We are the labor, the free labor, building that business. So why is that relevant? Go up to YouTube today and try to upload a, a clip of a Disney film. Do you think their systems will let you do that? The answer is no. They have technology in place to prevent copyright infringement. Go try to upload a song off the radio or a thing. Again, it will deny you the right to do that because they have copyright infringement technology. So could they have technology that stops hate speech? You better believe it. If we want to halt the tide of hate, we've got to be on the front line, and Facebook is that front line today. Over the last several years, we've seen a divide between the police and those they're sworn to protect. What needs to happen within the police force, but also within communities to change this narrative and to create more positive and effective relationships? Me and my wife was having this conversation the other day, which I shared with you, about just like, how do we reimagine like how the, the police and the criminal justice system can operate? And I think one of the ways is that if we started to hire uh, police officers from the neighborhoods that they're policing is one thing that we can do. But then also I think that if we started to hire maybe social workers as police officers mm. or having some component of social work included with the police department, that definitely could help. And then I also think like in Inglewood, we formed a group and I know that the, the other communities that are a part of Ready Chicago have also formed like these working groups with the, the district police officers where we meet and we strategize around what's happening and what, what community and what block. And then we kind of deploy resources in that neighborhood to get ahead of a lot of violence before it happens. Um, and so we've had barbecues this summer where we go out on, on blocks that have been deemed um, or targeted as a hot block where we will go out and, and bring resources specifically for that neighborhood. So it was, it was a, a very targeted approach. And then we would have like the Ready Outreach team um, go out and they would use that opportunity to identify individuals that are high risk to try to recruit them into Ready. And so I think that the relationships and some of the, the progress that, that we've already, like, already started, we need to continue that, but I also think that um, I, I think about the criminal justice system and I just think about how it's incentivized where I know before we would, we would, we would congratulate the police officers that made the most arrests. And I think it makes more sense for us to really look at like if, if somebody is continually um, arrested for a specific crime, like I think we need to start shifting from the what and asking why. Why is this person um, continuing to sell drugs? And, and what can we do to support this person so that they don't resort to selling drugs or crime to survive? 
So you, you had a barbecue on what you called the hot corner. Were the police at the barbecue? They were at the barbecue as well. And was there hostility toward the police presence there or did, did the community embrace their presence? So for the most part, the, the community embraced the police presence. Um, and I think it's just a part of just the relational work. Just that, showing up. Just showing up and, yeah. and actually sitting through the tension of, of people not wanting the police there. I mean, because rightfully so, if you look at historically, a lot of things that have happened between the community and the police, that should be expected, but that shouldn't steer us away from saying like, we need to, to, to go through this conflict in order to find a solution. You know, Adam Foss, the prosecutor in Boston, you know this guy? I've heard of him. He's an amazing prosecutor and public prosecutor in Boston who is focused exactly to your point, Marlon, isn't how many young men he can put in prison, it's how many young men he can keep out of prison. And he's got a great TED Talk, which is all about what Marlon said about incentives, right? And how do you reimagine the incentives? So it's not about how many people we put away, and the system is supposed to be rehabilitating them in the first place. Absolutely. It's how do we figure out, you know, how to promote better outcomes for these people. So I think it's really important work. We get back to what Marlon said, which is really insightful and important. What are the incentives? How are we evaluating um, the systems and the people who are part of the systems? Because I think when you break it down, the people are good people. But when the systems are designed incorrectly, when the incentives are structured in ways which clearly don't lead to better outcomes, we shouldn't be surprised that bad things happen. And so it really requires, I wouldn't say a dismantling, but I would say a re-engineering of some of these systems in order for us to get it right. So there is implicit bias that needs to be engineered out, and there's explicit racism, which needs to be shut down. And how can our prison system be reinvented to help the people behind bars come out and not reoffend? There's a missed opportunity here when someone's in custody that could alter the trajectory of their lives. Prison right now is it's all about profit. And, and not about rehabilitation. And so when individuals go to prison, there, there are really no systems or programs that really address a lot of the needs that individuals have that led them to prison. And so I think if, if we started to include more educational programs um, in prison where a person would go in and have an opportunity to take advantage of these programs so that when they're released, they have, a, they have an opportunity. Because I would also say, if, if you look at Chicago and you look at there, I believe there are a, a six to maybe seven zip codes that a lot of people that are, that are coming home from prison are going back to. And these are, these are neighborhoods with no resources. And so you're, you're releasing someone back to a community that really there's nothing there for them. And so I think that we just need to reimagine, like, what does it look like for us to really get to the root of why individuals are ending up in prison? Um, and then how can we capitalize and, and really value the person and not the profit that we can make off of this person to make sure that they don't return to prison? Marlon further discusses the importance of transitional jobs in providing cognitive behavioral therapy for individuals returning home from prison. The idea behind transitional jobs is that there are stages between a first job and a career. There are several reasons why we would want to, to get um, an ind individual um, that's had some sort of encounter with violence or whether it's returning home from prison. Um, I think the main thing is, is you want to you replace or add a source of income. And so if, if, if I'm in the streets and I'm participating in whatever it is, 
a, the root cause of that could be because I don't have any income to support my family. And so providing a job gives them a way to make money legally and also provide for their families. And then also a transitional jobs gives you an opportunity to develop skills. And so a lot of what we look at with, with Ready Chicago is in stage one, where we, we term that like the safety like stage is where we wanna have an opportunity to build a relationship with the participant, but also give them an opportunity to build a relationship with us so that they feel safe. And then we also look for like soft skills. Can you show up on time? Can you work um, with the team? Can you follow directions? And so those are some of the skills that they can develop um, working within a transitional job. And one of the things that I would say that people can do is to help employers help us reshape the narrative that employers have about this population. And so the, the more partnerships we can build, the more opportunities we're able to offer our guys because a lot of the employers that we have partnerships with, they know, they know about Ready Chicago, they know that this is a targeted program um, towards victims and, and perpetrators of gun violence. And so we're able to build a strong partnership where we expect our participants to mess up, but we also give them an opportunity to say like, even though you messed up, how can we learn from that mistake and you still have a job and be able to develop the skills so that once you complete Ready, you're able to go into a, a, a career versus just a job. To close, the panel discussed what people can do to address the underlying causes of violence and hate and what people can do to change the narrative to a more positive one. I would say definitely continue to, to fund initiatives such as Ready Chicago. Um, but then also, um, I think about in Chicago, um, I know that there's a bunch of groups um, working on a campaign called Fund Peace, um, which they want to implement um, the Office of Violence Prevention where it would be the, the city would really fund this, this office. And I think that is a creative way for us to continue to fund organizations and initiatives like Ready and other outreach agencies that are out in the streets doing the work. Um, and then I also think that, that we can continue to have conversations with our aldermen and legislators to talk about where we, the community, think or what we think some of the solutions are to addressing gun violence. And so I think there's a lot that we can do, but I just, I would say that people just have to get involved. And there are many ways that you can get involved, whether it's donating money, donating time, uh, reaching out to your legislator alderman, and just, and just talking to them about different ways that we can fund initiatives that are targeted towards gun violence and perpetrators and victims of gun violence. So I would offer you three specific ideas. And then one last thought, three specific ideas. Number one, speak up. When you see hate happen, when you hear a bigoted comment, you should interrupt intolerance. Whether it's at, you know, at the water cooler, or the break room, or the locker room, or you see it in your Facebook feed. You can flag a comment or you can interject, but all of us have the ability to interrupt hate. And even those small gestures go a very long way. So number one, speak up. Number two, share facts. Share facts. Don't respond to hate with hysteria. And I mean that. Like, there's too much mania, like in the media today. Too much emotion, too much exaggeration. Bring it down, 
be reasonable, focus. Because um, you all know that relative, right, who you can't talk to at, like the, at the dinner table, right? That crazy person who's so pro-Trump or pro-Bernie or whatever, you know, again, respond to that person with reason. And then I think you speak, you speak up, you share facts, and you show strength. The best response to the haters is love. The best thing you can do is stand up, not for someone of your own kind who's being attacked or bullied, but for someone who's different than you. Like, again, I think that's that which makes us, the differences actually make us stronger. So showing strength and showing unity, in my opinion, is the most powerful antidote to intolerance. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more from Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, please see the link to our blog in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com, and be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. Thanks, everyone. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.